Welcome to Gente and Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the Center's Director, David Hayes Bautista, the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research we have been a part of for many years. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of our gente and health. What is Latino? What is Hispanic? What is Chicano? Where do these terms come from? Some people use them, some don't. So let's understand a little bit of history. Let's go back 240 years, September 4th, 1781, the day that the city of Los Angeles is founded, where you had some people that had just recently walked from Northern Mexico to Los Angeles. And in today's terms, racially, some would be called Indians, some would be called Africans, some would be mestizos, some would be mulatos. And then you had two Spanish, if you will, but they were both married to Indians. However, they saw themselves as Mexicanos. When Mexico declared independence in 1810, Father Hidalgo declared racial equality and citizenship and the abolition of slavery. So folks here were now Mexicanos. They were a regional variant of Mexican society, identity, and culture. They were simply part of Mexico. But in 1848, the Big Bang occurred. Within the space of 10 days, two big things happened. First of all, gold was discovered January 24th, 1848. And 10 days later, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo took effect. And suddenly, the folks here were now citizens of the United States. But because of the gold rush, there was a huge in-migration of people from Mexico, now foreigners from Central America, South America, the Caribbean, the Spanish Peninsula, they all arrived here in California. And I've been curious, did they see themselves as a community? What did they call themselves? Well, I've been reading the Spanish language newspapers published here in California since 1851, and I can see very clearly the terms that they used to talk about themselves in distinction to the folks who spoke English and came from the Atlantic coast. They used terms such as raza. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They used Latino. They used Hispanic. They used Mexicano. They used Chileno. They used Cubano. They used Nuevo Granadino, somebody from Colombia, Boliviano, you name it. They used Cholo. They used Pocho. I mean, these all sound like, well, we use these terms today. In fact, they used back in the 1850s during the Gold Rush every single term that we use today except Chicano. That is the only term I cannot find being used during the Gold Rush and the American Civil War by Latinos to describe themselves. So all this confusion about, well, Hispanic was created by the federal government, no. This was used during the gold rush by Latinos to talk about themselves along with Latino, along with raza, and everything else that we use today. In the censuses, Latinos get really confused when we're asked to tell the census what race we are. And about half of us, when we say, well, what are the choices, white, black, Asian, Indian, or other, think, I don't see myself in these white, black, Asian, Indian. I must be some other race, whatever that is. Why the confusion? Well, the confusion has to do with here in the United States, we assume these racial categories are given that everybody naturally follows into one of them. But the experience of Latinos is very different. In fact, as we look at the founders of Los Angeles, I mentioned in today's terms, we would call them Indians, Africans, mestizos, mulatos, and Spanish. But let's think of more about 
their world and what has happened since then. And I have used the term Indo, Afro, Oriento, Ibero, Americano to try to get a better sense of the historic spread. So let's start with these terms, Indo for indigenous or Indian, although we have to remember that on October 11th, 1492, not one single Indian lived in the Western Hemisphere. There were Tlailotlaca, Chumash, Urepecha, Otomi. They were not Indians, but this Italian sailor was lost. He thought he had found India. Oh, look, I've discovered India. And he saw people, and we've been having confusion ever since. Along with the Spanish were people from Africa. We got here since 1492. Many of the sailors aboard the ships sailing from the Iberian Peninsula to the Western Hemisphere were of African origin. Many of the soldiers, the uh, conquistadores, were also from Africa. And actually, Africa was in the Iberian Peninsula for 800 years. The uh, wars left from North Africa, they also include many sub-Saharan African troops with them, were in Spain for 800 years, and many have stayed there, their descendants ever since. Some others came across the ocean to the New World. And then, when the first treasure fleet sailed from Acapulco to Manila and then back, uh, for, since 1565, we had people from every part of Asia coming into the Western Hemisphere, from China, Korea, Japan, today's India, Malaysia, the Philippines, you name it. So I like to use the term Indo, Afro, Oriento, Ibero-Americano, when somebody asks me what race am I, so I can get all of my history into my response. And also remembering that the Iberian, uh, in 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabel kicked all the Jewish folks out of Spain. And many of them came here to the Americas, seeking to escape the Inquisition. And they were so happy about that, about 20 years later, they kicked all the Muslims out of Spain. And many of them came here. So we have this very wealthy mix of who are we, which I think we sense this is why it's hard for us to categorize ourselves in one of these races when we are kind of all of the above. But that's why I introduced the term Indo, Afro, Oriento, Ibero, Americano to respond when somebody asks me, what race am I? The data on births, particularly in California, show that the world is changing and merging. As we have more and more, we call them racially ambiguous babies born every year whose parents are of different race ethnic groups. And we need to work in centering the experiences of these racially ambiguous babies. And we need to move away from the uh, shorter terms we've used, such as raza cosmica or the Spanish Indian mestizaje, and highlight all the overlooked intersections of Latinidad the African, the Asian, the indigenous the Iberian, and I have used the term Indo, Afro, Oriento, Ibero, Americano to refer to this larger mixture of just about all of the above. And I just want to start off by just sharing a little bit of my own experience. I was born here in LA, and in my mother's family, there were five sisters. Every one of them married somebody of a different race ethnic group. So that, for example, one sister married a Kanaka, a native Hawaiian. One married a Chinese. One married a gringo, that was my mom, married my dad. One married a Mexican, and one married her job. So as we were growing up, you know, we we're living over in East LA, this was family, you know, we'd meet every weekend. 
there are warm laps to sit on, there are cousins to play and fight with and everything else. And it never consciously occurred to me that we were a racially mixed family because we were just family. Actually, it wasn't until the 1990s uh, that somebody said, gee, you came from a racially mixed family, didn't you? And I thought, I guess you're right. I guess we did. I just never thought of it in that terms. You know, it was racially mixed, racially ambiguous, whatever else. It just it was Uncle Danny's lap, Aunt Sarita's lap, et cetera. So that started to inform some of my research. And as I looked at how Latinos formed here after 1492, uh, this racial ambiguity is kind of historic pattern. So I had my personal experiences growing up and we have here two other people who want to share their experiences. We have Jennifer Logia and Yonda Montgomery and we all happen to be Bruins. So let me start with, how about Jennifer, let me start with you because you were here uh, at UCLA and you actually started an interesting organization. You just want to chat a little about your experiences at UCLA and why you set up this organization and where you are now? Sure. Um, so I started at UCLA in 2011 and graduated in 2015. And for all four years, I was part of a student group called Mixed Student Union. I didn't start the group, but when I had joined my freshman year, it was only about a year old, so it was very new. And the group was for students who identified as more than one race or ethnicity. And starting at UCLA, I immediately fell in love with the group because that was the first time for me that I had ever even thought that I could identify as multiracial. And it was amazing to go to meetings and meet other people who, you know, maybe they weren't the same background as I was, but we were all multiracial or mixed in some way, and we connected through those experiences. So I was part of that group for all four years of my experience at UCLA. And as I graduated, I decided to start the UCLA Mixed Alumni Association. And so that organization has just really been a continuation of MSU. A lot of students who are a part of that group have continue to stay connected as an alumni. And we've also brought in alumni from, you know, previous years where MSU wasn't even, um, wasn't even around for them. And so it's been really amazing. UCLA has been very supportive and it's just been a really interesting space for people to come in and really be their authentic selves and share their experiences. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And now you have a legacy, an yes. institutional <laughs> legacy. All right, Deandra, I uh, just want to share your story a little bit, your experience. Jennifer, I was actually in the mixed student union also my first year and a half of undergrad. No way. Yeah, I, and when I, I saw your name on the email, I was like, it sounds familiar. Yeah, and I'm I sure we were there together. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I vaguely like remember you at meetings so yeah I just, I just awesome. wanted to put that out there like yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah so I um, also started UCLA in 2011 um, and I graduated uh, with my major in neuroscience and um, since then I've been working in clinical research and currently you know applying to medical school with the end goal of helping 
the community that I come from, so the Black and Latino community, um, since I'm, I'm biracial, Black and Latina, so I want to give back to those communities since, you know, I grew up in them and I know the disparities that, they, that they've experienced. Excellent, excellent. Uh, you know, just again, my own personal experience, when I was a kid, I didn't conceptualize our families being mixed race, but as you grow up, uh, people start to ask questions, say things. Um, well, let's we'll stay with you, Deandra, saying is, uh, you want to just share your experience as you grew up and, you know, initially it was just you and your family and then society hits. So growing up, I identified as Mexican. As a child, I, I grew up with my Mexican family and everyone around me was Mexican and Latino. I lived in the Latino community. So I perceived myself as Mexican because that's what I saw around me. And as I grew up, I started to change my identity because I started to acknowledge the other um, racial side of me. So as I entered my teens, that's when I identified more as Black and Mexican. And I, I would call myself a Black skin at the time. And then when I went entered undergrad, I started to learn even more about uh, the racial history of not only the United States, but also of um, Mexico, because I took a few uh, Mexican uh, a few Chicano study classes, actually. So I started to learn more about all the history, and I just started to identify more as Afro-Latina. So now I call myself, I'm, I'm Afro-Mexicana, Afro so just to um, give power to both of my ethnic, both of my ethnic backgrounds. Amazing. So Jennifer, I just want to share a little bit about your personal experience kind of growing up and trying to make sense out of this crazy world. Absolutely. So I was born in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and my mother is an immigrant from Nicaragua, and my father's family come from both the Philippines and from Guam. So um, the earliest uh, memory I have of identifying racially was in kindergarten when I was asked to fill out a form. And uh, I remember my parents always telling me to check all the boxes and so I've always identified as multiracial. I've always had an understanding that my family is multiple things and come from multiple countries. And um, growing up, you know, a lot of my aunts and uncles were in interracial marriages. Most of my cousins are multiracial. And even just growing up in the Bay Area and in California in general, you see a lot of diversity and racially mixed families. Um, but even still, I didn't really identify as being multiracial um, in the way that I do now until it was until I, I attended UCLA. So I majored in Asian American Studies and International Development Studies. And through coursework and through being involved in student groups, I really got to take a deep dive into how racial constructs are formed, how identity changes over time. And um, ever since I have, I have always uh, identified as multiracial. Interesting. And another, uh, just uh, these things pop through my head. Uh, as we look at the treasure fleet that would sail from Acapulco to Manila and then back, uh, the Chino Poblana, who was a figure of the resistance to the French intervention during the time of the American Civil War. 
oh, Chinese woman from Puebla, right? Latina Poblana. Well, it turns out actually there was a, a, a real person. Her name was Meera, who is actually from Rajasthan, right between today's India and Pakistan. Um, not even from China, but you know how in Latin America, everybody from the East is considered Chinese. Right. Okay, Fujimori is Chinese. Uh, and so she uh, wound up coming across the Pacific Ocean. She was adopted by uh, the captain of the ship and wound up in Puebla. And so she would wear the mirror cloth of Rajasthan and she uh, devoted herself to very pious work. She would raise funds by sewing and buy slaves out of their indenture so that when she died in her honor, and there's a plaque of the house where she died in Puebla, the women of Puebla tried to imitate the mirror cloth and that's the sequence. So that in fact, the, the so-called quote unquote national Mexican dress is actually from Asia. So again, we just have these roots, you know, corn, flour, tortillas, chino poblana, et cetera. And sometimes as Mexicanos, as Latinos, we forget that we are ourselves a product of just a crossroads, if you will, of the population, culture, food, songs, music of the world. So um, back to you, DeAndre, you were involved with Latinos, Chicanos for Community Medicine. Yes. Back then it was just called Chicanos. It was Chicanos Latinos for Community Medicine. Yes. Uh, okay, you have a big smile on your face. You just want to just share that experience? Yes, yeah, so I joined um, LCCM now uh, my first year, within the first month of my first year. So I joined back in October 2011. And I was involved throughout my whole four years. And what I love the most about the organization was that it's helped broaden my, my view on what it means to be Latino because the organization didn't just accept um, Mexicans, you know, because at the time it was Chicano, so it didn't just accept Mexican. It was like, there were different, different there are people from, with backgrounds from all types of Latin, all of, all of the different Latin American countries. So, it was during that organization actually that I was talking with someone and they were telling me uh, why I called myself like a Blacksican. And I was like, well, because I'm black and Mexican. Like, so I'm a Blacksican. And they were telling me, you know, why don't you use the term Afro-Latina? And I was like, well, I didn't, I don't think it applies to me because at the time how I viewed Afro-Latina or Afro-Latinos, um, it was, only if you were like from the Caribbean or you know from Brazil or, or certain type Latin American countries where in the media they show that there's more of the black Latinos so I was like it, I don't feel like it applies to me but he was telling me but I think it does because you you are Latina and you are black and that's what it means you know so I started to do more research on it actually and I mean it ends up that you make of the identity what it is, what you want of it, you know? So I started to do more research on it. And then that's when I started to um, embrace the Afro-Latina term more and more. And I've come to see just how broad it is and how it applies to actually every Afro, Af every Latino country. You know, when, uh... The Chicano movement erupted in the 60s, and I was an undergraduate. I was up at Berkeley at the time. And of course, the question was, what is Chicano? 
And actually, I did my doctoral dissertation at UCSF on the early days of the Chicano Medical Student Group. And I found about 20 different definitions for what is Chicano. Now, like nobody could agree on what is it, but it's okay, so we use it. And I er learned that when you go to New Mexico, they don't use the term Chicano at all, at least not back then. Uh, it was Hispanic. And in Texas, it was Mexican-American. And in New York, it was Boricua. And in Miami, it was Cubano. So yeah, we, I say it's not just there are five different types. There are 60 million ways to be Latino. And each one of us just understand and embrace our own. So Jennifer, have you ever been back to Nicaragua? I have. Um, the first time that I went was when I was 13 years old. And ever since then, I go about every two years to spend the summer there with my family. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd, I've always known that that's where my family is from. And my mom has always kept us connected to that culture through the language and the food and the music and my family and storytelling. Um, however, when I went there for the first time, it was very clear that I wasn't from there. Um, a lot of people made comments about my eyes looking kind of Asian and my Spanish is okay, but it's clear that it was not my first language. So, you know, it was, it was great to finally visit the place that my family is from and where my heritage comes from but at the same time also feeling like okay i'm different i stand out for sure <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that's, I, I guess this is what we have termed the latino double imposter syndrome here you're always too strange and too different to be american but then you go to nicaragua you go to mexico and you're not Mexican, you're Pocho, you're Cholo, you're Chicano. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just basically, we just have to learn to embrace it, that, hey, we are who we are. And that gives us, in fact, our internal strength to do the things that we do. The assumption from Washington is that everybody fits into one of five races. And I just think we've just shared, well, we don't, we certainly don't. We've been used to using race, but I think it was kind of as a shorthand. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, President Obama. He was often described as being biracial. And I used to say biracial. So like one arm is black and the other arm is white. No, he was a person and he got things done. But just our narrative, the US narrative, it makes it difficult to think of people being more than one flavor. And yet here we are very comfortably. Uh, three different flavors here on this program, 60 million different flavors in the United States. Uh, how do we as researchers address that? So DeAndre, you're going into medical research. Uh, have you given a thought about how you would like to see, uh, if not these racial categories, how would you like to start exploring, identifying disparity, sameness, difference, diversity? Bring your experience into it. What would you suggest that medical re research be looking at? I mean, how I see it, it's just, it's not just so much race. You know, we can't be saying black people are predisposed to this. It's more about what about the social um, and economic system of the United States? It's making the people in this community more, more likely to experience and be diagnosed with these illnesses. Uh, I think that's a good research 
trajectory for the future. We need to figure this out. Can we somehow move around this idea of biological race? Maybe look at yeah. race as a social construct, yeah. uh, as a racial narrative construct. And also, you know, we have lived the effects of these. We have our own narratives. We push back. So I think that probably should be part of the medical research. As we're going to have to start winding down, unfortunately, I, God, I wish we had you know hours to talk about this stuff. Uh, but Jennifer, um, you seem to have gathered a lot of strength from understanding. Okay, I'm mixed race. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's listening this to this right now, who's thinking, yeah, so my mom's got this, my dad's got that. How do I put it together? What would you like to tell them? I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give to people is find community where you feel like you can be your authentic self. I think for me, thinking back to when I was in high school and starting college, I had surrounded myself with people where I felt like I had to be somebody else to fit in or tone down certain parts of who I was. Um, and I think a lot of multiracial people experience that in under different circumstances. And so my advice would be to look for community, look for people where when you're around them, you can feel like you can be your 100% authentic self. And that is going to make, you know, your college experience that much better. In essence, yes. Deandra? Um, well, speaking like from my own experiences, I feel that it's important to have those tough conversations with your family and friends because I know growing up there would be moments where I would hear things or see things that people around me would do and it would make me uncomfortable but I wouldn't voice it and I, I wish that I could go back and if a family member would say something that I would find like racially offensive to address it and be like explain to them like this is not okay this is making me feel this type of way why, why, why are you saying, why are you saying this? You could say this in a different way. Um, that's not racially offensive. So I feel just trying to be open and talk about your feelings and having just those tough conversations with those around you. And if the, your friends don't want to have that conversation, then you, then obviously that's telling you, you need to go find other people who are more accepting of you. Well, I think you both touched on two really important points that we always stress for, for leadership. One is voice, developing your voice and not being afraid to use it and sometimes ask the difficult questions that sometimes need to be asked in research when people are starting to research stereotypes rather than real life human beings living in communities with families, that's the time to raise their voice. And the other is bringing your whole self to school, bringing your whole self to college. If you're at work, bringing your whole self to work. You shouldn't have to leave any part of yourself at home just to get the job done. That in fact, the other parts of you may be what that organization needs and needs to learn from. So it's bringing yourself to work with your voice actually in re the research world will make for better research in the world of providing clinical services. It'll make everyone better providers. In the worlds of your family and community, it will make stronger, better communities. And of course for ourselves, the more we can just simply understand our own voice, and apply our personal biography and share it, it makes us 
I hope better people, certainly better researchers. Well, I'd like to thank Deandra and Jennifer so much for sharing this, uh, your personal biography, your experience with racial ambiguity and Latino terminology, identity, whatever we wish to call it. So thank you so much for sharing your biography. So for all of you listening to this podcast, we have a suggestion. From the neurosciences, we have learned that the act of capturing your thoughts by writing them actually help you understand what you're thinking of. If you could actually, in the next little while, next couple of days, while you're still thinking about these things, do a little bit of journaling. Just sit down and start to communicate with yourself and put in writing what you're thinking about what does it mean to be Latino, Latinx, Chicano, Mexicano, Nicaragüense, Indo, Afro, Oriental, Ibero-Americano, so that you can just carry on your conversation with yourself as you continue in your journey towards professional development. That's all for this week. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. This podcast was written and produced by Giselle Hernandez and Brandy Lopez. Our executive producers are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso Greenwood. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez. And music this week was by Mariachi de Uclatlan. Tune in for the next episode as we delve into further topics of Latino health.